Titus chapter 1, verse 10. The title of the message this morning is Waxed Fruit. Waxed Fruit. My mom used to have a bowl of waxed fruit on the kitchen table. You remember that, Mama? A long time ago. Long back when it was it was in in style. In verse 9 last week, Paul said a pastor must be a man who is, if you'll look back in verse 9, holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught. We told you that means that a pastor must stick to the faithful word of God according to its teaching, according to the actual doctrine that the word of God teaches. And Paul said a pastor must be someone who does this, look back in verse 9, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. Meaning they, by the faithful word of God, will be able to exhort those who take heed to the word of God, which I hope you're all doing this morning, and demonstrate the error of those who take aim at the word of God, which I don't believe anyone is doing here today. And now this morning, by God's grace, Paul is going to tell us why it is so important for pastors to make strong arguments using sound Bible doctrine. Man, if we need anything today, it's sound Bible doctrine. Paul said, look now in verse 10, here's why you need it. For there are many unruly. There are many unruly. So in this verse, Paul gives three descriptions of the type of people who take aim at the word of God. In the first that he gives is unruly. He says unruly, if you want to mark it down. He says vain talkers, if you want to mark that down and underscore that. And then the third one is what? Deceivers. Very good. Unruly, vain talkers, and deceivers. So we're going to break that down, aren't we, Brother Doug? We're going to read it distinctly and give the sense of it. So first, we will consider the unruly. Okay? So when we're looking at Unruly, we're emphasizing the prefix un. Unruly. An unruly person is someone who, on account of their rebellious heart, cannot be ruled. When I think of the word unruly, I think of the water hose at my home. I, I love to water my garden. I picked a bunch of squash this morning for Tammy, by the way, before I came in to get ready for church. And, uh, I love being out there. I, I grab my water hose first thing in the morning because if it's going to be 90-something degrees, then I'm going to go grab that water hose in the morning and go out there. And I got that high-pressure nozzle so I can reach on out there and water those vegetables. I take that nozzle and I get out there and I spray down all the garden real good. And sometimes with a high-pressure nozzle, if I turn that water on, and I don't have hold of that nozzle or if it slips out of my hand. You know what that thing does? What does it do, Abigail? That's exactly what it does. And I've got it grabbing. It's making a water mess. And I finally grab hold of that thing. When I think of unruly people, I think of that water hose. When it's out of the owner's hands. You see? If I don't keep a firm hand on that water hose... That hose is going to go absolutely wild, twisting and turning in every direction, spraying water everywhere. 
when I'm in control of the hose, when the hose is under my rule, the water sprays exactly where it needs to go. And it brings much fruit. Okay? You see? But when the hose is not ruled by my hand, the water gets wasted and things get wet. They're not supposed to. The point is the hose was not designed to rule itself. That hose makes a mess when it rules itself, but it makes a garden when it's ruled by me. It makes a mess when it rules itself. It makes a garden when it's ruled by me. In the same way, folks, we weren't designed to rule ourselves. We were designed to be ruled by our Creator, to be under His wise and loving control. And we make a mess when we try ruling ourselves. I've seen lots of messes people have made. Lots of messes. My wife and I right now, there's some people we love and we're watching their lives and it is just like that hose. And they think, we're free. We're free. And they don't realize the mess they're making until it's too late. So Paul said, there are a bunch of unruly people in this world who refuse to yield their lives to the government of God's wise and loving hand. In a parable, Jesus described the attitude of unruly people toward him in Luke 9.14. Luke 9.14, Jesus said to those people, he says his citizens hated him and sent a message after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. They didn't want Jesus to rule over them. They didn't want their God to rule over them. Whether they realize it or not, those who are not ruled by God are like that unruled water hose. They think they're in control. They think they're having a good time. But they are going the direction uh, that they want to go out of control. And they're not going in the direction for which God created them. They're recklessly moving in every direction, wasting their lives as a hose wastes water. And for a person, there's only so much water that they can spray, and then they're gone. And you know what unruly people need? They need sound doctrine. They need to understand why the hose was created. They need to understand what their purpose is. They need to understand how much better it would be if their life was in God's hands. If you're unruly today, I hope you'll take in this sound doctrine and just let God wrap His strong, firm hands around you and control you. Some people say, I don't want to be controlled by anybody. Oh, I sure do. I sure do. I want to be controlled by God. When that hose is flipping and flopping every which way, it's free from its owner's hand. That's true. But its freedom is nothing short of a chaotic mess. Where does, where does the water mess come from? It comes from an unruled hose, right? Where does unsound doctrine come from? It comes from unruly people. From people who reject God's truth which rules in the hearts of God's people. So what is unsound doctrine? Just think about this just a moment. Where does unsound doctrine come from? 
Unsound doctrine is doctrine that's free from the rule of God. Unsound doctrine is doctrine that's free from the rule of God. It's doctrine that's nothing short of a chaotic mess. And mark this down, because there's a lot of people teaching unsound doctrine out there. And it gets crazier by the day what they teach. Back a long time ago, there's only so much unsound doctrine that could be tolerated. Because if it got too crazy, people would have spotted it and they'd been called out. Today, you can teach almost anything in the name of God. Almost anything in the name of God and people will accept it if you teach it clever enough. But mark this down. Behind every unsound doctrine, there is an unruled heart. Behind every unsound doctrine, there is an unruled heart that's teaching it. That's coming up with it. But the more we embrace sound doctrine, the more God's loving hands embrace us and bring us into His divine control. Paul said, there are unruly people. And what was the next one? He says, look back in your text, and vain talkers. Vain talkers. People who have a lot to say and don't say anything when they say it. That's what they are, vain talkers. Paul is describing people who teach false doctrine as vain talkers. Now, the word vain, if you're taking notes, it means empty. It means worthless. So you have to understand, when God created Adam, he gave the human race the gift of words. I'm a word man. I love words. Brother Shepherd loves words. You can't really be a good Bible teacher unless you love words. But I'm a, I love words. And God gave the human race the gift of words. Think about when Adam was created. He was created with a perfect dictionary in his head. He had a full vocabulary. Adam wasn't made as a baby. He's made as a full-grown man. And from that full-grown man, God took a full-grown rib and gave him a full-grown wife. And Adam, before he was given that wife... God took him and brought before him all the creatures that he made. And Adam named every one of them. Now you think about all the creatures that are out there. And we have names for every creature. Names for every plant. And Adam named every one of them. That's a man that had an absolutely full vocabulary. And and more than just full. He had a creative vocabulary. And so God gave words to the human race. He hasn't given to any other creature but us. And so words mean something. Uh, uh, Words are a gift from God. When James Johnson, it's good to have James Johnson here with us when he's in town. I uh, wish he could stay here every Sunday. When he hauls his truck across America, that truck contains valuable, much-needed goods. The supply line for American stores across the country. And as that semi-trailer pulled by that truck was designed to contain valuable cargo, the words we speak are also designed to contain valuable divine cargo. When he pulls that truck across the country, that trailer has got that cargo and he moves it from point A to point B. When I'm speaking to you right now, Those words are like those little cargo trailers. 
They've got meaning. They've got truth. And so when I speak, honk, honk, here they go, out to reach you and, and, and bring it into the loading dock of your mind. Words are the semi-trailers. Our mouths are the trucks that take the words where they need to go. Can you imagine what the world would be like if we had a bunch of truck drivers? There's one right out there. He, he takes the windmills. Uh, but could you imagine what it would be like if we had a bunch of truck drivers and they all started showing up at the loading docks with empty trailers? Empty trailers. They pull up, loading docks, doors open, pop the seal on the trailer. Everyone's excited to come bring it in so they can restock the stores and everything. Raise the doors up and there's nothing in those trucks. You know what would happen? The economy and society would begin to collapse. And there would be some very disappointed people. Truck drivers would certainly be fired to ensure it would never happen again. But did you know that's exactly what false teachers do when they get up in the pulpits every Sunday? All the, all the depot, I mean, all the, uh, 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 um, what's the word I just said? Cargo where you pull back in. Dock, loading docks. All the docks pull in. They come to their seats, ready to get filled. And there are vain talkers in the pulpits. As truck drivers haul their empty trailers, they're speaking empty words. They speak words that are empty of truth. Words that are empty of grace. Words that are empty of any godliness at all. They pull empty verbal trailers, honking their horns, making a lot of noise, but delivering to the people a whole lot of nothing. That's what they're doing. That's what Paul's describing. And they had that trouble way back then. The Greek word translated vain talkers, it has the idea of contentious arguing. Meaning they use these vain words to speak against the message of Christ. And the pastor must be able by sound doctrine, by the faithful teaching of the faithful word of God, he must be able to demonstrate and point out their empty cargo. And it doesn't mean that they're up in the pulpit saying God's bad, Jesus is bad. It means they're up there and they're teaching false doctrine. I mean, some of them do teach against Christianity. We see that all the time. They're vain talkers. But you know what else? There's people in the pulpits that get up. They also are vain talkers. And by teaching unsound doctrine, they're teaching against the sound doctrine. You see? They're opposing it. It's contentious opposition. And because of that, Paul says they are, look back to the third category, they're deceivers. He says, and deceivers. And the word translated deceiver here, it's a combination of two Greek words. One word in the Greek means the mind. The other word in the Greek means mislead. Now, if you're familiar with teaching on repentance, then you also know that the word repentance uh, in the Bible, translated repentance, it comes from a compound Greek word, one meaning the mind as well. The other meaning to turn around or change. Okay, So think of 
this the same way when we're looking at deceivers. One is the mind, the other is to mislead. So uh, as repentance is to change the mind, deceiving is to mislead the mind. Repentance takes the mind from the point that we're at, that's wrong, and it turns it in the right direction so that our mind agrees with God. Deceiving is the opposite. It takes the mind from where it's supposed to be, from where it should be, and it turns it away from the truth of God and sends it off the wrong way. That's what a deceiver does. A deceiver is someone who leads a person's mind to the wrong spiritual conclusions. They deceive them with their vain words. They lead them astray in their minds. And to mislead someone spiritually is one of the worst, if not the worst, crime that could ever be committed against another person. I'd hate to think that I had a part in someone rejecting Christ as their Savior. Boy, I tell you, I get so many calls and emails and stuff. I had someone write... Uh, on an old, it was an old uh, sermon I taught here years ago on uh, Calvinism, election, do- doctrine of election. And uh, someone commented on the sermon, was asking for help, wanted to know that they truly believe in Christ as their Savior. I've never had YouTube. They didn't come to the website like most people do, but they're searching. You could tell they're out there searching. They asked for help. So I wrote the person back uh, on YouTube and gave them, uh, gave them some links where they could go get the understanding they needed. But you know how all of that happens? Unsound doctrine. People getting up in the pulpits, Week after week after week, I told Brother Doug this morning, I said, Brother Doug, when y'all are teaching those young people in that Sunday school class, never undervalue your job. Because 99% of the people that write me for help about their salvation, their story begins like this. When I was about six years old or eight years old or 10 years old, that's how their story begins. Almost every one of them. And when people are teaching unsound doctrine, they are molding those children's minds and how they view life, how they view God, how they view the Bible, and most especially how they view salvation and how it works is molded from that young age. And they'll carry those ideas if they're not corrected to their deathbed. They'll die with that misunderstanding. And this is why it's so important that we don't mislead somebody's mind when it comes to the gospel. Or when it comes to any other doctrine in God's word. I'd hate to think that I had a part in someone rejecting Jesus as their Savior. Or not accepting Him as their Savior. Or struggling over the, the, the wondering if they were saved and had re- accepted Him as their Savior. On account of something I'd taught them. But when Paul wrote this letter, there were then, as there are today, a lot of vain talkers. And I want you to notice something here. At the time of history, when this letter was written, do you know what one of the biggest religions were back then? Paganism. 
when you look in the book of Acts and you see Paul and Silas and and, uh, Timothy and you see all these people going out to these different countries, they'll be hollering, great is Diana, the God of the Ephesians. And they'll be wanting to stone them and there'll be all these idolaters out there. Yeah, the Jews were after them too. But the Jews were in the minority, just like they are today. Paganism was the dominating religion at the time. They just got through with, with a, a Greek empire that just got defeated by Rome. What was Greek? Greece, Greek mythology. Rome comes in. What's Rome? Roman mythology. And so they're surrounded by an empire of pagans. Nevertheless, Paul didn't warn Timothy, or Titus rather, he didn't warn Titus primarily about the deceptive work of the pagan teachers. That's not what Paul was mainly uh, concerned with. Paganism was probably at its zenith at this time. Pagans are deceived people. There's no doubt about that. But they weren't the greatest danger to the church. Paul said there are unruly people. There are vain talkers out there. There are deceivers out there that are turning people's minds away from the truth of God. Look back in your text. Specially. In other words, let me tell you the most dangerous category to the church let me tell you what the most challenging opposition is to the church of god paul says especially they of set with me the circumcision the circumcision this was paul's way of saying there are a lot of unruly vain talking deceivers out there especially the unbelieving Religious Jewish leaders. That's what he's saying. Why would Paul call the unbelieving Jewish leaders the circumcision? Well, circumcision was a surgical procedure that we're all familiar with. And it began back in the Old Testament. When God gave the Abrahamic covenant. He told Abraham, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. Your people are going to be blessed and I'm going to give this land to you. And, 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 and through all the world, I mean, through you, all the world, every nation, Abraham will be blessed. This is my covenant, my promise to you, Abraham. That was the gospel in the Old Testament. And so after doing that, God told Abraham that every child born of him, should be circumcised. And he said, that's going to be the token, the sign of this promise, this covenant that I'm making with you. Genesis 17.11, I'll read it to you. In Genesis 17.11, God told Abraham, and ye shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a token of the covenant Betwixt me and you. So circumcision was a token. You got that? If you'd missed that, you've missed it all. Circumcision was a token of the covenant that God made with Abraham. Circumcision was not the covenant. It was merely a token or a symbol of the covenant. Which identified the man, Abraham, 
with the promise that God made him. You see that? We have tokens of the New Testament covenant today as well, don't we? When we take someone back here in this baptistry that professes Christ as their Savior, we take them. Could someone uh, check the nursery, please, and make sure they're okay? Is that is that from the nursery? Yeah, Brother James, if you'd check, make sure they're okay. It may just be a child hitting the button, but make sure they're okay. We have safety things here, and you just heard one of them. If our nursery worker hits that button, someone's going to go check on them. All right? Now, if James don't come back, we'll probably send someone the gun to check on James. See? All right? But when we take someone and we baptize them in that water and bring them back up out of that water, that's a token of them being crucified, buried, and risen with Jesus Christ based on their faith in Him and His gospel. The baptism is not their death, burial, and resurrection with Christ. It is a symbol of their death, burial, and resurrection with Christ. We take the Lord's Supper. And when we take the Lord's Supper, that's also a token of the covenant that identifies the people with the promise, right? Same thing. In baptism, identifying the person with the promise. When you're taking the Lord's Supper, you're identifying the people with the promise. But his circumcision was only a token. So is baptism, the Lord's Supper. It's just a token. And when that COVID virus first came out, a lot of people went and got their COVID vaccines. And when they got vaccinated, everyone that got vaccinated, they received a little card. How many of y'all have your card on you right now? We've got several that have their card on them. So you know exactly what I'm talking about. And when you received that card, that card showed the date that you received the vaccine. It showed the name of the vaccination that you received, whether it was Moderna or Pfizer or whatever. And uh, it showed the name of the person on that card that received the shot or shots. So that shot made a lot of people feel better about getting out in public and being exposed to the virus. But that card was not the shot. It was just a token of the shot they had received. You see that? It was a token of the vaccination that they had received. But no matter what your opinion of the shot is, because we're not discussing that. What would you think if a group of highly trained doctors began telling the world, you don't need the vaccine to be protected from COVID. That vaccine is nothing but a scam. What you really need is this piece of paper. That shows you have the vaccine. What would you think about that? If you went to your doctor to get your booster shot. Because some of y'all are going to go to the doctor to get your booster shot. And you went to that doctor. And that doctor wrote you out a card. That said on this date. Such and such received their booster shot. And they put your name on there. And they hand you that card. And they said. Go in good health. And you say, well, aren't you going to give me the shot? Oh, no, you've got the paper. Well, you don't need the shot. This is all you need. Y'all would think that doctor was a quack. 
But did you know that's what vain talking is? And, 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 and people are giving that paper out. It's empty words. There's no medication in it. There's no health benefit to it. It's just a piece of paper that represents something that never happened. When someone gets baptized in that baptistry, and they have not put their faith and trust in Jesus as their Savior, that's all the same as getting a piece of paper saying they've been born again when they hadn't. It's all the same as getting a piece of paper that says they got a shot when there's no shot been given. And they go off and they walk and they got that piece of paper and you're going to heaven? Yes, sir. You going to catch COVID? No, sir. Look at my paper. And they think they're safe. And there's no safety at all. Paper is not a vaccine. It just represents the vaccine. Baptism is not salvation. only represents the salvation Jesus provides. In the same way, the Old Testament law is not our salvation. It only represents the salvation of the Savior that was to come. The Levites, the priests, the sacrifices, the tabernacle back then. It was just the paper. Yet the Jews in Paul's day, as they still do today, were telling people they didn't need Jesus. They only needed the things that represented Jesus. Have you ever thought of it that way? That's exactly what they were doing. You don't need Jesus. You just need these things that represent Jesus. They were handing people the card. Without giving people the medicine. They were telling people to embrace the paper. And to deny the medication. And as crazy as that sounds. That was the number one threat. To misleading the minds of potential Christians in Paul's day. Think about it. Why? Because in our fallen flesh. Do you remember what God said in the Ten Commandments? I am the Lord thy God which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. He says, don't you make any representation of any likeness in anything in heaven above or in earth beneath. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. What was those representations of God in heaven? It was just empty words. They were just carvings of something that wasn't even there. Carvings of a God that didn't exist. And in our fallen flesh, God knew that we are prone to embrace the symbol and to neglect the substance. That's what the flesh does. The fallen flesh of man is prone to embrace the symbol and to neglect the substance. Those of you who have your vaccine cards on you right now. Anyone have your vaccine card on you right now? Can you picture what it looks like in your mind, Miss Bonnie? Have you felt it in your fingers and held it in your hands? How many of y'all here today that have the shot in your body, that carry the card on your wallet, how many of y'all ever touched the vaccine? Nobody. How many of y'all can pull the vaccine out and look at it anytime you want to and get assurance of your protection? Nobody. 
That's why the flesh is prone to embrace the symbol and to reject or neglect the substance. Because the symbol gives the flesh something it can touch, something it can look at, something tangible to their flesh, their eyes. Where the gospel is by faith. It's by faith. It's spiritual. You look there in the book of Hebrews chapter 11. It talks about by faith. They said they saw the promise afar off. It wasn't something they could put their hand on. It wasn't something they could touch. Listen, I've never seen Jesus on the cross. The people who even saw Him on the cross back then didn't even understand the cross. It didn't mean as much to them. They thought it was defeat for the mission of Jesus. It wasn't until later, after the cross, after the cross was probably put away and burned and, 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 and destroyed, and they couldn't go grab the cross, or anything. after all that's gone, after the body is already out of the tomb, now the light starts to click on. Now they understand the Old Testament prophecies. And not a single person in the Bible, not a single apostle, mentioned anything about the wood Jesus died on. Why? That was tangible. They preached what Jesus did like we do today. But the religions that give you vain talking, that are the most dangerous to the church, they're the ones that will give you the symbol and neglect the substance. You walk into a Catholic church, you're going to see symbols all over the place. Did you know that that the main argument for the Catholic church for having the idols, because they're clearly idols, clearly idols. When you're walking up to a statue of Mary or a statue of Jesus or a statue of a saint or a statue of angels or whatever, and you're bowing before it, What did God say? Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them. He said, don't make any likeness of anything in heaven above or earth beneath, and don't bow yourself to them. But what do we see them do? Going before them and bowing down themselves to them and praying to them and doing all this right here. Why is that? Because they lack the substance. If they were preaching the cross of Jesus Christ, if they were preaching salvation by grace, through faith alone, in Christ alone, they wouldn't need the symbols. Because they'd be given the substance. And so that's one of the most dangerous things. Because the flesh, our religious flesh, will grab hold of that card and think, I'm on my way to heaven. They wear a little... I was talking to a woman last year. She was in Japan. man wanted me to talk to her, try to lead her to the Lord. I said, okay, she was willing to talk. I was willing to help. So I called her on the phone in Japan. And she was raised Catholic. And when I'd try to talk to her about the Bible, try to talk to her about the gospel and the cross and what Jesus accomplished for her, she had no interest in that whatsoever. She said, my priest back home in the Philippines, she was from the Philippines, she moved to Japan, married some guy in Japan. She said, my priest in the Philippines had given her like a little crucifix. 
had given her some other kind of little trinket, Catholic, Catholic trinket. She said, I have those things, so I believe I'm okay. That's what she told me. I have those things. I believe I'm okay. Man, when Jesus comes again, <laughs> can you imagine her standing before God and all of her sin and putting that little, those little plastic trinkets down there in front of him and say, here, will you accept me based on this? You think God's going to say, oh, those are the trinkets. I like those. Come on into heaven. That's not how it's going to work. That's not even a good symbol. They're given symbols and not substances. That's why evangelicals gravitate to altar calls. That's why you get a lot of evangelicals. They don't know the gospel very well. And they gravitate to altar calls. Why? It's something the flesh can do. They make a flesh appeal for a fleshly response when the gospel has a spiritual response of faith. So instead of just taking them to the cross by preaching the gospel and letting the preaching of the gospel cause the people's to look up to the cross by faith and believe in Him who died for their sins, they make these emotional appeals. Them to get up, stand up, walk across, kneel down, and pray. It's all something they can do. I've had people time after time tell me, oh, I believe I'm saved when I got up and I walked, when I walked out of that altar. I've had, I don't know how many people tell me, tell me that. I believe I was saved as soon as I stood up out of that pew and began walking down to that altar. If you think that, you're wrong. And you need, you need to understand the gospel. That's not salvation. That's you standing up, walking down to some steps at the front. There is no altar in the New Testament. The altar was abolished by the cross. That's where you've got to go now. That's why they do it. They give things people can do in the flesh rather than give them the substance of the gospel they have to believe in their hearts. The less doctrine a church has, the more duty they will substitute for it. I've seen a lot of churches get up. I'm almost done. I usually try to be done by a quarter till. I've seen a lot of churches, the pastors get up and, and they, they, they give a bunch of rules to the people. The more rules they can keep, putting their hair up in a bun, not putting makeup on, wearing certain kind of clothes, do this, do that, don't do the other, got to do more of this. The less sound doctrine a church has, the more unsound duty they'll give those people to substitute for. The less substance a church has, the more symbolism they will substitute for. Symbols are dangerous doctrine because they, like the vaccine paper, bear the name of the substance. They don't supply the substance it names. Crucifixes, altars, prayers in Jesus' name for salvation, and many other things bear the name of the gospel, but they are not the gospel. They are things we can see and do, but they are not the things that save us from our sins. Paganism and atheism are nothing like Christianity. It's easy to tell them apart from us, from what we believe. But Christian symbols, Christian symbols are like wax fruit on a religious table. They can give you a false notion 
that you have plenty of food to eat, when in reality, there is nothing on that table that can sustain your spiritual life at all. That is what Paul is warning Titus about. And that's why he's saying, Oh, Titus, the men that stand up to preach your word, they must have sound doctrine. With that, we'll go ahead and stop. Take back up in verse 11 next week. Please don't be offended if I condemn your wax fruit. You know, people get offended at that. I've had people leave the church because I've condemned their wax fruit before. <laughs> they get so upset because they've been toting that wax fruit around since they were little kids. And it becomes sacred to them. And when you point it out and show it as wax, it's not in Scripture. They go, oh, how dare he do that to me? They take another bite out of it. God, we thank you for your precious word. I thank you, Father, that your word is just what you said it was, sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing asunder between soul and spirit, between the imagination of man and the inspiration of God. I thank you, Father, that by your word, teaching it as it's written, then you will rightly divide the word of truth. I pray, dear Father God, that you'll let these scriptures sink down deep into our hearts. And I pray if there's anyone here today that has relied on religious duty, that clings to gospel symbolism, that Father Lord, some way, somehow, they have missed simply coming to the cross of Christ and putting their faith where you put their sin on Jesus crucified for them and putting their whole hope for eternity upon the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus in their place. I pray they'll drop the wax fruit and they'll take from the tree of life and live forever. In his precious name we pray. Amen.